Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my special guest in this episode is my friend and fellow pastor, Luke LaDuke. If you've ever wondered how pastors get from a text in Scripture to a finished sermon, this one's for you. Part spiritual discipline and part stewardship, the process of understanding and then proclaiming the message of Scripture is much more involved than an introductory class on homiletics might suggest. In this wide-ranging episode, Luke and I are going to try and unpack some of the secrets of sermon prep. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced listeners of the commentary to my good friend Luke LaDuke, and this episode is one that we're recording while Luke was visiting me in Sioux Falls. I'm I'm speaking in the past tense, but of course, it's actually happening right now, Luke, so you're still here in Sioux Falls, at least on the commentary. I am not in the past tense. I am in the present tense at this moment. It's good to know where you are. But in the future, I will be in the past tense, is what you're saying. That's my hope for you, yeah, at any rate. um, We are currently hunkered down in the studio waiting for the temperature outside to rise above zero, but thought we would take advantage of this time to have another conversation, this time talking about something that is near and dear to our hearts and also central to uh, the calling that both Luke and I have as ministers of the gospel. Uh, We are both teaching elders in the Presbyterian Church in America, ordained ministers of word and sacraments, and I think it's fair to say that at least in terms of the way people perceive our role, the central task involved is the preaching of the word. Right. And so we're going to talk about preaching in this episode and compare notes on our own experiences, the way we approach the task of preaching the word, And also, we might get into some theoretical considerations as well. So, it may seem a little bit like inside baseball, but I think there are a lot of people who are fascinated by the process of preaching. Uh, I don't know about you, Luke, but in my everyday life, I do occasionally get people asking me, whether people in the church or people outside the church, how I prepare a sermon uh, how my sermon last Sunday went, you know, right. questions like that. That yeah, uh, you never know where that question's coming from. Right. So how exactly did you go about preparing that sermon? On yeah. Sunday? No, exactly. <laughs> uh, we were talking earlier, and I think this this might be a good starting point with the kind of sermon feedback that you most like to get. Now, I think that there's a little bit of a challenge to to that topic because. On one level, maybe we're not supposed to like getting any positive Mm. feedback, you know, that it's not about us. It's certainly not about being praised for your effort or anything like that. But but when you're preaching, the the response that you get from listeners does impact whether or not you think you got your message across. Yeah. You know, and so what kind of feedback do you look for? Yeah, I think... I think, and I, this is maybe a little bit different direction than you were going with the question, but not really, because I would say that the feedback that I look for most and want the most is not after the sermon is done, as much as it is while the sermon's being delivered. Okay. Like, 
are is the room together in this mm-hmm. is there a connection i don't know if you've you what am i saying i know you've had this experience because of what you do with worldview and you're not necessarily preaching in but you're lecturing you're trying to establish some sort of connection to an audience um you know how unsettling it is to be up in front trying to communicate something that you feel is vitally important and be stonewalled and to experience that that sort of i mean hopefully you'll always experience silence but more than silence um sort of a deafening uh, quietness that means it doesn't even feel like there's any back and forth even though a sermon is not necessarily back and forth although i'm sure you remember back in our former days there was a bit of back and forth I think that does touch on maybe cultural realities too, that uh, if you were uh, a Southern preacher, right, your idea of audience participation mm-hmm. probably looks more like participation mm-hmm. than if you, for example, are here in the Midwest. Right. Um, you know, when you talk about getting feedback from the audience as the sermon progresses, <laughs> I start thinking about, you know, people yelling amens and right. shouting and right. dancing well, around. And, yeah, and you know, in, in one tradition, I mean, you've probably heard this as well. Preachers will to, um, they'll ask for an amen. They'll say a line and say, amen. Jesus loves us all. Amen. And they'll sort of like invite that participant, yeah. Participation, yeah. So, in the context of the sermon, uh, I would say that kind of thing isn't necessarily what you're after. No. In, in other words, performative right. gestures right. are not real indicators that you're no. on the same page. Yeah. Not looking for vocalizations, yeah. Or, Although or, that's fine, but. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the the point is like behavior patterns that are sort of learned patterns, how mm. to behave in a sermon right. is not the same thing as a genuine reaction right. to what is being heard. Right. And so I think what what you're getting at is indicators to you as a preacher that people in the congregation are actually hearing mm. and mm-hmm. are engaged. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a connection. It's a nonverbal. It is a nonverbal, non-physical, but nonetheless undeniable connection that gets established. Um, yeah. It's yeah. It's very real. And yeah. when it's absence, when it's absent, its absence is very real. I think the the kind of feedback that encourages me the most is whether it's witnessing it on someone's face or hearing it after the fact Mm -hmm. when they seem to be experiencing what I experienced Mm. as I engage with the text and, and sort of prepared myself for the sermon. So if my mind was blown by what I discovered, if I saw something with new eyes, some formerly familiar passage came alive in a way that, that I never expected. If I sense 
from someone who listened that they had that same experience. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that I feel most encouraged by. So if someone comes up and says, uh, hey, great job or funny story or great joke, they never say that to me, but mm-hmm. but hypothetically speaking, right. um, that's great. Yeah. But the thing that makes me think, aha, okay, yeah. I think I think something deeper was going on here is when I can see that whatever was learned or whatever was experienced mm-hmm. was was like what I learned and, right. and what I experienced. I, I agree with you 100%. And to take it further is when someone comes up to me afterwards and is able to take a point that I was making even farther and more maybe a little bit more broadly or perhaps a little bit more pointed and deeper than I was able to make it. And that is incredibly encouraging because not only did they get the point that I was making, but they were invited into the stream of thought and into the larger point that I was making and were able to apply it in far better ways than I was able to, even in the sermon that I'd spent a lot of hours writing out. Right. It's, it's the kind of feedback, I guess, that you're like, well, next time I preach this sermon, that point's exactly. going to be and, included. And like, yeah. at, a, at a church uh, like ours where there are two services, I'm so grateful when that happens at the first service because right. then at the second service, I will unashamedly grab that and add it right in when it's appropriate and easy enough. Brilliant. Brilliant. So let's talk a little bit about the method of preparation, because this is something I think (laughs) a lot of people wonder about, you know, there, there there are mysteries in the life of a pastor that, that people aren't always conscious of. And so they know that during the week, there's something, let's call it sermon prep that's happening. Sure. But they don't necessarily see uh, there's not a, a live stream camera above your desk so that people can check in and see, um, Thank goodness, right? Yeah, but, exactly. But let's talk a little bit about how that goes, because I know Luke, your method over the the over twenty years that I've known you mm-hmm. has changed yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's fair to say for both of us that when we began, we had a much more, let's say, extemporaneous approach. Mm-hmm. Right? We both mm-hmm. grew up in traditions where. Um, like preparation for a sermon was very different. You might you might have, okay, I'm, I've got these five proof texts. I'm going to weave together mm-hmm. somehow. I've got, yeah. you know, this this story, that story, that illustration, this mm-hmm. call to action. You know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And in the the moments, I'm going to weave those together somehow, so that a guy might get into the pulpit with no notes at all or very few notes, right. and and is mainly doing an improvisational mm-hmm. yeah. style presentation, right? So yeah. having grown up with that, I think that was sort of my sense of of the way to do it. And that's changed over time. And, and I know it has for you as well. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that journey, like yeah. how you started and what were some of the things that, that sort of yeah. led you to start developing? Yeah, well, like you said, uh, the tradition that we were a part of what it valued was authenticity and what they valued about authenticity was 
that it came from the heart. Like the 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 value in authenticity was not so much that it was a lengthy and and uh, written out reflection of what you might come up with, but that in that moment you were squeezed and this mm-hmm. is what would come out. So spontaneity, and, really. Yeah, spontaneity, and, sure. And because spontaneity was associated with spirituality, like, right. like you're not right. preparing, you're letting the Holy Spirit Exactly, do exactly. The wind blows where it will. Is that a good... Uh, analogy or is that a, a false dichotomy? Like, is it the case that the more you prepare, the less the Holy Spirit is involved? Uh, I've always liked to say I'm giving the Holy Spirit a lot more hours to do his work mm-hmm. than, than right. I was before. Right. And again, you know, I, uh, yeah, I don't want to get into these pronouncements that make anathema any sure. other way of preparing than sure. the way I do it. I want to be very careful. Because interestingly enough, one of the preachers who shaped me profoundly, whom I most admire, might be Sinclair Ferguson, who goes up into the pulpit with just an outline of what he wants to say. And it might be on a three by five card. And that's that's how he goes into the pulpit, and I don't do that. But the it's still a different product. It's not mm-hmm. that there isn't reflection. It, that's more of like what he goes up into the pulpit with, yeah. which is a different thing. So growing up in that and being a pastor in that tradition for five years and practicing, uh, starting the practice of the craft in that manner— when I came into the world of Presbyterianism and uh, the Reformed world, what I noticed was I didn't actually know the text in the way that I needed to know the text in order to communicate it faithfully. And that was a new experience because there's a shifting in values that goes on I think, from my former tradition, and I will stand behind this, where in the former tradition that we were a part of, I think one of the huge values was the personality of the deliverer and and the delivery itself. That was of primary value. Whereas I was coming into a world where actually the text was meant to be of primary value. And you could go at it a lot of different ways, but what was non-negotiable was that the text itself and what the scriptures were saying had to be communicated in a way that was understood. And so that was the beginning of a shift for me. And it's identifying that shift that made that forced me to have to redo the way I prepared. That's a great point. I mean that that you're basically saying that as your goal changed, your method had to change. It had to. I couldn't sustain. You couldn't get up with personality and make the text come alive. You, yeah, that yeah. that could only be done so through I think study. That like that that intended outcome. Like if if you're really going to have a deep encounter with the text, then you have to figure out what's the method mm-hmm. that allows you to do that, and right. then go for that yeah. method. And I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but you could still answer that question in different ways, mm-hmm. right? Because, oh, yeah. you know, different men 
have different abilities. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one may have a three by five card and the other one may have a full manuscript. Exactly. And the goal still be the same. Right. It's a question of how that man reaches that goal. That and and yeah. no one can answer that for him. He has right. to find it for himself. And, and that's, I mean, I'll go back to Sinclair Ferguson on this, where this is a man with capacious intellectual gifts and can study and read and hold things together and in his mind go up into the pulpit with a couple of points on a card and be able to stick to it and make it mm-hmm. make sense at the end where I don't have those capacious gifts in that way. So I have to get to that end in an, in a very different way. And so for you, the answer ended up being preaching from a manuscript. Yeah, it, 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 it shifted in seminary when I was Mm. (laughs) taking a preaching class with Sinclair Ferguson. And I realized all of a sudden that uh, I'd preached one or two sermons in the class. And I realized that I was not saying the things that I had actually wanted to say that were actually on my notes. Um, So I was trying to do a hybrid of both with, I think, you know, as a speaker is like a death knell. If you go up with a bunch of material and you think, oh, well, I'm just going to say a little bit of this, it's awkward. Or if you go up with just a little bit of material, but you're trying to read it word for word, it's not written that way. It's not. So I had this sort of crisis where I was knew I had to prepare more. And I needed more than just a, a bare outline. And, but uh, I began trying to approach an outline like a manuscript or trying to approach a manuscript like an outline, and neither one worked. So for me, the really important shift was saying, okay, I can get up with a manuscript and now I've got everything that I want to say. And then it became a question of how does one wear their manuscript, which is probably another discussion. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was an important shift for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I can relate because over time, you know, my method has changed a lot and I don't preach from a manuscript. Uh, Although I had an interesting experience where in homiletics class, uh, which I took paradoxically after having been ordained, I was sort of forced to preach from a manuscript, like as an assignment. Right. And so I, one Sunday in the middle of a sermon series I was already doing, uh, switched things up and preached from a manuscript one week. And mm. it felt so strange to me and mm. so mm-hmm. um, artificial. It wasn't yeah. what I was used to. And I just imagined you know, people saying, what, what was up? You know, why, why were you so uh, awkward and, and everything? And, <laughs> and so afterwards I asked a few people, you know, I guess you could tell a difference, right? You know, that, that was pretty bad. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, what, what, what was different? You, you changed what? And, and no one had been aware. Oh, wow. That, so all of changed. that was in your head that it went so terribly. Exactly. Like it, it was all what I experienced right. adapting the method. Which, it wasn't anything to do with, yeah. with what people actually heard. But yeah. That's interesting because I think that's this is probably just a, a rabbit trail, a sideline. But we, I, in my experience, we are the worst judges of, yes. of the whole thing together. 
Yeah. Um, as far as a sermon goes, I, I think the one who delivers it is probably in the worst position of all to decide whether that went really well or whether it. But there is another sense in which we're the best judges, which is like our um, negative assessment is not necessarily wrong. Right. Like it could sound like what you're saying is, you know, we're our own worst critics. And the reality is what we do is much better than we no, think it yeah. is. But I, th- I think it's not good that, point. right? It's it's right. that you're conscious every week that you failed. Like, yeah. you know, when you get up into the pulpit that you, you don't know enough, you mm-hmm. haven't, you haven't understood as much and you haven't mm-hmm. given enough thought to how to say it just right. And yet in hindsight, you look back and realize that, that I didn't make the cut, but the Holy Spirit mm. bailed me out yeah. again. Yeah. You know, that, that there is a spiritual reality there's there's a, a divine work in the reception of the word yeah that you become conscious of because right. you know what went into it and you see that there's no way mm-hmm. that what you put into it led to these results yeah so i should share here at this point because this reminds me of conversations that we've been having for oh my goodness 15 20 years um but early on when I made that switch from more of an extended outline or or sometimes a bare outline to a manuscript, I really struggled with the manuscript portion of it. And you, as my friend, were a writer, and a manuscript is what you've been doing all of your, you know, life in one sense. Paradoxically, except yes. when I'm preaching. Except yeah. when you're preaching. And yeah, that is a, a great irony. There are a lot of ironies that you and I are sitting across the room talking about preaching, but that's just one of them. But one of the things that you told me early on, as I had made that switch to manuscript writing for sermons, is when I shared my struggle, you said, Luke, you have to find somebody's voice whom you admire and who connects with you that you would like to emulate. And as you're writing, imagine what you are writing is being said by the voice that you admire so well. And write it as you conceive they would say it. And I did that. And the person I chose early in my seminary uh, time was Sinclair Ferguson. So as I'm writing, all I can hear in my head is this Scottish brogue, and the Lord said to Moses, or whatever, you know, and I'm, I I would literally hear a Scottish accent in my head. That sounded more like Sean Connery to me. I know. Every time I try to do a Scottish accent, it's Sean Connery. But uh, I'm a man of a certain age. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, but th- that was incredibly helpful to me. And I, I want to say, like publicly and on record, which is what a podcast is, um, I, am, I do not sound like Sinclair Ferguson as a preacher. That is not. But he was really important in establishing, helping me find a voice, which is exactly right. what you said would happen. Well, and I think that's a good insight that we're always reluctant to name our influences because there's this assumption that if I say the name, you should be able to tell right, absolutely that not. that was an influence. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about the people who've been really instrumental in shaping me, mm-hmm. but I'm reluctant to name them because I feel like I fall short of, right. of those 
standards, you know, right. that, that yeah. I don't exemplify. Mm-hmm. I just admire right. what they right. do. And I, so you, that was your first bit of advice. And so that helped me get through the manuscript portion of it. But the second bit of advice that you shared, and I don't, I don't even know if you remember saying this, maybe you do, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, it's this deep, profound thing you were just waiting to drop on me at the right <laughs> moment, and you had it all sketched out. But I would really struggle with the fact that after a whole week of writing, this is what I'd come up with. And you said a line to me one time years back, and you said, Luke, you have to remember, the manuscript is not the sermon. And of course I knew that, and yet it's hard to hold on to that when you are pouring energy into something that just doesn't feel like it's meeting up to your own expectations after all of the time and energy that you put into it. And then you realize like on Sunday morning, as you're walking across the parking lot with manuscript in hand, you're like, this is what I have to show for all of the time I've spent. And so that to me has been this, what you were just saying a moment ago about the spirit and, Mm -hmm. and that the spirit takes that and transforms it in the act of preaching this idea of kerygma that um, it's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. I think you could distinguish like two phases, let's say this way oversimplifying, but, but in the life of a sermon, right, mm. there's the interpretation phase and then there's the presentation mm-hmm. phase and all of the frustrations of interpretation are something you go through so that you are brimming by the time you get to the presentation. But what the presentation yeah. will be, that's where I think you have that that other kind of, let's say, you know, you in the task of interpretation have given all this extra time to the Holy Spirit, right? And shaping you, showing you things, guiding you. And now you're moving into this, this experience with the congregation where the word is being proclaimed. And in that shared experience, there's this other thing that the Spirit is doing in addition to that. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it difficult to know, right? Like you're constantly thinking to yourself, oh, this sermon, this is good. Like this isn't like all the ones that came before it. This one is going to preach. And then the experience of it does not deliver that or vice versa. I find myself often thinking, um, just didn't work out this week. Right. You know, yep. I, I I am sad that mm-hmm. this week is is letting the side down, that we're not going to have the kind of mm-hmm. experience of, of the word that we had last time, but, you know, you can't win them all. And, right. and then you go to worship, and by the time you have entered that pulpit, the Spirit is working in a way that, that you are like, oh, okay, I, mm-hmm. I guess I didn't know what this was until right. it happened. Yeah. So. Thinking about that, when it comes to the preparation, the interpretation, yeah, a lot of people have very dogmatic ideas yeah. about how that should be approached. Now, Don't I know it. Yeah, like we can get into, <laughs> you know, we've already alluded to like manuscript versus yeah, outline yeah, or something yeah. like that. And people can be really oh, rigid yeah. about yep. what the right way is there. But I think even more basic in my mind is a kind of... De- decision that has to be made that I would describe as as the 
the choice between the method and the text, hmm. right? That we're very connected to interpretive methods. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it seems to me that the temptation is to put the method of interpretation first. Right. And then just apply it to whatever yeah. kind of text yeah. you happen to be looking at when the reality is the text often dictates how best right. to interpret it. I think um, sort of picking up on that and maybe giving an example of that is what I think of as sometimes a confusion that is often embedded for, for some reason, particularly in Reformed circles, um, who care so much about preaching, right, that the pulpit is at the center of church architecture and the sanctuary, um, that sort of thing. But I think a confusion that often goes unexamined is equating exegetical preaching with expository mm, preaching. Yeah. And I wonder if... What's the distinction? Yeah, I, I think that's something for us to flesh out. But okay. like, let me start by yeah. saying exegetical preaching is often thought of as going line by line or verse by verse. And I think one of the first things that I would mention is that expository preaching doesn't necessarily have to go line by line or verse by verse, but instead it is expositing, exposing the meaning of this text, whereas if you were to approach a text to try and expose its meaning and you go line by line or verse by verse, you might in some ways be obscuring its meaning. Yes. Okay, now now that's a great point because I, I have had the experience before where if I'm in a sermon, and I'm really carefully working through for the congregation, like, like here's this word, and this is what it means, and then it connects to this word in that way, and then if we look at the next phrase, we, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of, like, one layer on top of another, yeah. there's a certain kind of listener who afterwards will, will try to give me a lot of positive reinforcement, mm-hmm. and, and it's, mm-hmm. the, the gist of it is kind of like, you should do that every time. Do that more. Right. Yeah. Like, like, I don't like it when I hear a sermon that doesn't give me that. What does this say in the Greek? And, and the question is, is that the only way to get at the text? Because if you think about it, it's not a natural way. Mm-hmm to interpret, right? It's not the way we interpret most texts in our lives. It's not the way, um, I hate to say it, but but if you had been in the church in Corinth and had received a letter from the Apostle Paul, uh, no one would have sat down and said, okay, first of all, let's divide this up into verses and number them. Right. And, and secondly, <laughs> let's take a, a, a little bit, don't, wait, wait, don't rush into the whole sentence, let's pause over this phrase and really marinate. I feel somehow in it. coming on a rant by you about the versification. No, of no, no, scripture. no. I'm going to okay. set that aside. Okay, but, okay. but just to say that sometimes we can be too clever for our own good. That right. that the text tells you mm. how to interpret it, and yeah. and if I always apply that very sort of zoomed in, right. you know, looking at it under the microscope yeah. approach, I do it with the risk of sacrificing the mm-hmm. big picture, yeah. right? And and to me, that's the difference 
between exegetical preaching and expository preaching as misunderstood. Sure. Now, I don't I think exegetical preaching is a fine and sturdy and good and useful way to say it as long as by that you don't mean what we've just been talking right. about. Right. I think you might say it this way like the exeg- the task of exegesis is necessary. Exactly. The question is how much of that task is going to be replicated in the sermon. What what sort of bleeds through? Yeah, and I think you do want to show your work, Mm -hmm. right? You do want to demonstrate and model for Mm -hmm. people good interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you will focus in on that more than at others. But what the text needs is going to be, for me, the, the first and foremost thing. And that also applies to... You know, if we zoom out a little bit and think in terms of bigger, like, theories of preaching, so redemptive historical right. preaching, um, yeah. I I love the idea of the redemptive historical method. Uh, I aspire mm-hmm. to live up to it every right. Sunday. Yes. But not to the extent that I'm going to make the text fit at all costs. Yeah. You know, there's there's nothing that moves me more in hearing a sermon than that turn, you know, mm-hmm. right towards the end mm-hmm. where suddenly the cross is lifted up in an right. unexpected way yeah. and I see Christ in the text in, mm-hmm. in, in a way that I didn't anticipate. And, and when I'm able to do that, I feel a, a deep satisfaction. Right. But at the same time, I don't want to artificially do that, right? I want to come by it honestly, so yeah. to speak. And so... I find, and, and this may just be a confession of my own limitations, but but that depending on what I'm preaching, mm-hmm. where I am at in that sort of Lectio Continua, mm-hmm. like I'm working through books of the Bible, right. line by line, um, I can do that more or less depending on what the text allows me to do. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to make because... Both of us, I think, were just utterly overwhelmed by the redemptive historical interpretation that we found in our early days at Westminster Seminary. Um, And that, and I still will say that that is the thing that makes my soul sing unbidden. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's hearing a pastor take something and then connect it back here and make the story all of the sudden not choppy like it was in our uh, former life, not uh, make the Bible not a loose association of moralisms or maxims to live by, but to show us again in this depth and beauty and intricacy that the Bible is one story, as the Bible Project guys say, that leads to Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. And yet, if it becomes the one thing that you impose over every line of the text or even whole swaths of the text uh, unnaturally, it has become something that does not exposit but obscures. That's good. The, the metaphor for me is something like the craftsman or the artist, uh, you know, the story, and I, I have a feeling this never happened, but mm-hmm. it's the story. I think they tell it about various sculptors, but Michelangelo is, is who I'm thinking of, where 
the, the question is, how do you do what you do? And it's like, I picture in the stone what I'm looking for and I chip away everything that isn't Doesn't that. Doesn't look like it. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not saying anything about that method, but, but the obsession behind it, the idea that there's mm-hmm. a vision, there's something you're right. chasing you after. Already, yeah. And it's not as maybe the case with a sculptor, like a, an image that you've predetermined. So it's not as easy to recognize as it would be for Michelangelo, let's say. Right. So as, as the one who will preach the word, I have this thing that I'm striving towards and it's the truth with a capital T it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's God in his glory. It's, it's something I know that I cannot actually attain, but I'm striving towards and I have to adapt whatever method is available to me to get to that. Mm. And so like the woodworker who, you know, may use this tool to do this kind of work, that tool to do this kind and and yet realizes he needs them all in order to make the, the, the thing that is in his mind. Mm -hmm. I find myself constantly thinking through like, um, like what are the tools I don't have? Hmm that are necessary to getting the thing that, that I'm striving toward. And so as a result of that, the other factor in this conversation about, you know, how we prepare is that that's for me always changing Yeah, because the parts that I feel like I get nailed down and Mm -hmm. settled in this process, just free me up to think about the ones that still feel, you know, vestigial, you know, that there's, there's so much more, that needs to be done there. So it, it's about the application of skill, mm-hmm. interpretive skill, but developing, let's say, more skill at interpretation. And yeah. so I find myself constantly thinking about the way we interpret texts in other mm, contexts, right? And I become concerned when I find myself reading the Bible differently than I would any other text or tr- mm. or or applying a method of interpretation that is uncharacteristic of the way texts are interpreted. Right. And so this artificial thing that somehow imposes something unfair or out of bounds upon the text. Right. Yeah. I think that's an interesting, because I'm convinced and, and right or wrong Part of the difficulty that people have in understanding the Bible is that they're accustomed to it being interpreted in ways that they themselves could never have come up with, (laughs) right? That a guy could spend his whole life reading and reading deeply in a lot of different topics, but when he goes to church and he hears the way the Bible is interpreted... All that's set aside. Yeah, there's no way he could have arrived at that. So this reminds me of what uh, how we first met, you and I first met, was you were leading a Bible study for the young adults at the Baptist church that we were both a part of. And I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I think it was that what you've just articulated as a founding principle for gathering these young adults around the table and going around and reading verses and saying, now tell us what that meant. And I'll I'll let you talk about it, but I think that was an exercise in trying to break down in the minds of these young adults sort of like 
accretions, layers upon layers of, oh, when you approach the Bible, this is how it has. You can't just say what it means. You have to use a different sort of language. And yeah, different- that's an interesting example. So, so some listeners may have heard me talk about this before, but I don't know that we've ever gone in depth okay. on this experience in the commentary. But so, you know, I was fresh out of grad school. I had always disliked Sunday school growing mm-hmm. up. And uh, so I was asked to teach Sunday school to college students. And I decided that because I didn't like Sunday school, I would teach Sunday school as if it were one of the things I did like. You know, I loved yeah. school. And so I just taught it like it was a real, quote unquote, class. Right. And it occurred to me that in my literature classes, we always read the text and and, and broke it down and, and yeah. talked it through yeah. before we ever jumped to, right. you know, trying to do anything beyond that. In fact, ironically, in literature class... We spend a lot more time sort of understanding mm-hmm. the meaning and genius of the text than we did doing anything that might approximate, you know, practical application. Right. You know, so we revered the words of, let's say, Chaucer, Dickens, whomever, in a way that I was not accustomed to the words of Scripture being revered right. as they were discussed. Right. So, so I went into it that way. And I also faced a practical hurdle, which was just the translation had a formality to it that wasn't the way people speak. Mm -hmm. And so there was a need to kind of boil it down into Mm -hmm. everyday words. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll divide up whatever text we're discussing. I'll give little chunks of text to each person so everyone will get to talk. And all I'm going to ask them to do is to paraphrase what they've just read aloud. Mm -hmm. So you would read a few verses from the text, and then you would just put it into your own words. But what I found was that students couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. That What they did was they did free association. Mm -hmm. So they didn't tell me in their own words what they just read. They took some word here or there, and then they talked about what it made them think of or feel. Where do you think they learned that? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think yeah. it was a combination. It was, yeah. they were accustomed to the text being treated that way. Right, that's... And right. they were also, like, they weren't able to do the simple thing I was asking them right. to do. Right, because it wasn't like you were asking them to do anything uh, intellectual or academic no. at, at any rate. It, it should have just, been simple, but right. but they were, they were not accustomed to taking a little chunk of scripture and just putting it into their own words, you know? So over the course of, you know, three years doing this, Mm -hmm. the students who were part of that experience, you could see them improving in their ability to understand what it was that they were reading and make it their own and and really deal with it accurately. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it taught me a lot about the way that when it comes to the Bible, we have artificial habits Mm -hmm. of interpretation so that if you can start reading the Bible the way you would read other texts, ironically, you become a better reader of the Bible. And and instinctively, we think that there's heresy there. You can't read the Bible (laughs) like it's any other text. And yet, of course, the the first audience for for all of these writings would have done exactly what we're talking about. And so... That's the the hurdle mm-hmm. that I guess the the rest of my life has been oriented around mm-hmm. is trying to help people become better interpreters 
in a sense, by mm-hmm. removing the barriers of interpretation. Mm-hmm. So all that just to say that that as I think about how I handle the text, I become increasingly conscious of, of not wanting to put up too many of those barriers. Right. Uh, it was very instructive to me, for example, when I was first exposed to R.C. Sproul and, and his teaching style, that he did not do this thing that I had grown up believing was necessary, which was constant scripture citations. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't constantly peppering everything he said with verbatim quotes from the Bible and Mm -hmm. then giving you the quote-unquote address for where you could find it. Uh, He would sometimes throw in a phrase that I recognized as a a quote from Scripture and not identify it as a quote from Scripture. Uh, He'd internalize it so much. It was just the way that he thought and talked. Or he would do what the author of Hebrews does and and allude to... Somewhere it said... Yeah, yeah. it's, you know, the author of Hebrews inspired Scripture, as someone somewhere said, and then he gives us a, a Bible quote. So... People often aren't aware that that the chapter divisions and numbers, that the verse divisions and numbers are not part of the text initially, and and actually came surprisingly late in the process, in the Middle Ages and even Mm -hmm. in the Renaissance. And so um, I have self-consciously tried to do less of that. I mean, I think there's a utility to being able Mm -hmm. to to Mm -hmm. use those things, and so it's not as if I'm slapping myself anytime I refer to a verse number, but... But, but I've tried to talk about the text in a way that's more textual and less mm-hmm. academic, less yeah. uh, critical. That makes me think of, and, and this is a bit of a sideline, but on that idea of the way in our tradition you would reference verse after verse and it says here in proverbs but then you go over to revelation and then you hear that sort of thing i think really fundamental for me was taking those illusions that you find in scripture themselves and really trying to not make your own illusions that make you think of it but then when a scripture writer makes allusion to another scripture, that you really take that seriously. And not just the one verse, because as we know, verses are very late. Going back to discover what is the whole context. So this past Sunday, I was preaching through uh, the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. And as he's interacting with the tempter, he goes back to... Deuteronomy 8 and then Deuteronomy 6. But the point isn't it's 8 verse 3 that he uses or chapter 6 verse 8. It's that whole extended section there in Deuteronomy is about what is how Israel had failed in worshiping and living out of love and obedience and faithfulness to their father. And how now Jesus was coming to do that, and he's referencing what they should have done, how they should have lived in the middle of his own testing so that he faithfully passed. But like, if you just are thinking, oh, it's Deuteronomy 8, not that whole section, you miss that point. That's a, that's a great point. So in that wilderness temptation in Matthew's gospel, what's fascinating to me is that not only does Jesus 
not just do what people often say, like like answer the temptations with scripture. Right. Like it's, it's yeah. he's doing that, but yes. what he's doing is much more specific than that. He's going to a very particular place in scripture where Moses is, after the fact, mm-hmm. recounting what took place and and doing it almost in the form of a sermon, an right. exhortation to the people. Right. Don't make this same mistake. Exactly. And. Jesus also does something interesting that you see if you look at where those references come from, because it seems as if they're out of order, because yeah. the citations will jump, but it's because rather than taking them in the order that Moses gives them in Deuteronomy, Jesus takes them in chronological order, right. like the, the, the way the they happened in, in they history. Failed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... There's a complexity to that yeah. that makes it one of those areas where you really do have scripture interpreting scripture. Yeah. That's so different right. from that tendency to just grab a proof text here right. and a proof text there and then to weave something new from to them. To stitch them together and with I, your own I think thoughts. the point is that if we do that other thing, that that proof texting, weaving together thing, we lose mm-hmm the depth of those real connections Mm -hmm. that are often there to be found. And so, yeah, that's good. I um, have another pastor friend. Remember I said I have two in our last podcast. Um, But we were talking about how, and I'm throwing this out there as a question for you, and I'll get to the question, but he always says, Luke, you've got one sermon and you're always finding your way back to the garden. And somehow, I'm in a lot of sermons, I find myself back in the Garden of Eden thinking about the trajectory, some sort of layer in that amazing story in the first three chapters of Genesis yeah. that sets a trajectory. And it seems my friend is always, his one sermon is always somehow about corporate worship and about, and and mm-hmm. he'll take that and that will be something through which he finds the Adam and Eve story is a story about worship or a failure of worship or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Do you have one sermon? That's a good question. So Graham Greene once said that a ruling passion gives to a shelf of novels the unity of a system. <laughs> and I knew I could trust you for something literary. Yeah, I mean, I've always here. been fascinated by that because it leads you immediately as, as a novelist to say, do I have a ruling passion? If not, where can I get one? Uh, because right. of course you want to have a unity right. to to your work. Um, so I don't know. Like I, I do think there are themes that I do return to because subjectively they're things that intrigue me or that, that mm. I find really illuminating. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big one for me is the idea of human creativity as giving form mm. to the raw material of God's creation and mm-hmm. seeing that as like cultivating as our cultural task. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I would say that and and a lot of other things connected to what it means to be human, like like, like what true humanity mm. is and what it's not, is probably a recurring theme of mine. What I would want to convince myself of is that the things I return to in that way, I return to because scripture does. Right. Um and and I think that's legitimate because 
When I taught that class where we went line by line through the epistles of Paul in more or less chronological order, mm-hmm. one of the most striking revelations for me personally, like what I learned, yeah. was that the Bible talks about a lot fewer things than I realized. <laughs> I, my idea of the Bible was right. somewhere in the Bible it talks about everything. Yeah. And, and there's just no telling yeah. you know, what, what's going to come up next. And when I actually force myself to go through and teach these things in context, I realized that even though he was talking about them in different ways, Paul had a set of themes that he was constantly Mm -hmm. returning to and going back to because they were the elements of the Mm -hmm. story that God was telling. And so I think that's the key is that Mm -hmm. there is, let's say, one sermon. Yeah. That God is preaching, right? And we follow after Him mm-hmm. if we have a similar kind of focus. It's just that I think subjectively, my one sermon is not as full as God's right. one sermon, right? But there is a unity to His that mine aspire to in their flawed way. Yeah. No, I think that's lovely, and I think, I think, when you identify that the Bible is telling, God is telling one story with Jesus at the center. I think my overwhelming desire in preaching the gospel is to tell that story in such a way through my own one sermon or through Mm -hmm. my own limited three sermons is that our people fall in love with that story, the story of a God who comes to them in Jesus and how that story is supported and and at the center mm. of all of these ways of, of articulating the story. Even if yeah. you're getting at it through worship or if you're getting at it through creation or if you're getting at it through human creativity, you're only doing that because this is at the center is of a God who's come I mean, to you us. know what you're doing. You're, you're, it's the turn. It's the redemptive historical right. turn. Here we are having a technical conversation about <laughs> preaching, and, I can't help and suddenly you've lifted up the cross, and we're in this new area. But yeah. I think it, 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 it works, and it's important that we conclude on that note, that what we're discussing may sound like really technical and, 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 you know, not different from the way anyone interprets anything or, or tries to give a presentation about it. Mm. But the reality is that what is behind all of this effort is exactly what you're describing, that, that we are proclaiming Christ in him crucified. Mm. We are lifting up the cross in the wilderness so that all who look upon it can be saved. Mm-hmm. And that is what matters, not how we prepared, exactly. what, what, who we are mm-hmm. as communicators. Right. Everything is subservient to that. Yeah. Well said. I think one thing... I would like listeners to take away from this is to recognize that none of us, and neither of us here, and, and I would say none of us as, as Presbyterian ministers, see our task first and foremost as an exercise of our skill 
mm. as uh, a piece of rhetoric or public speaking or yeah. a performance that we are somehow responsible for. Right. But that when we enter into the pulpit, this is a means of grace. Mm. This act of preaching is an act of worship. Mm-hmm. It is a display Mm -hmm. of the gospel of Jesus Christ, an invitation for all those who hear it to enter into the kingdom and to Mm -hmm. unite themselves to Christ and find themselves in him. And so uh, whatever effort it requires of us as very imperfect vessels to be able to do this is justified by the greatness of of what we aspire to. Mm. It's lovely. Yeah. And I think another podcast would be to talk about where that sermon gets set. It's it's mm. in the midst of corporate worship. It's in the oh, midst yes. of the liturgy and the readings, yes. and it goes with the word in the table. So yeah. let no one hearing us think that this is sufficient in itself. Um, it is Good word point. and sacrament. It's Good word point. and table, but we just happen to be talking about this one aspect yeah that that's that is a beautiful point that it is all worship Mm. and we want it all right all the gifts that god has given us we want for the people of god luke thank you yet again for taking the time to do this uh luke is supposed to be here on vacation but instead i've had him shoveling snow and making podcasts and he has you have plied me with copious amounts of coffee there you go and so it's it's a square deal perfect well we're gonna go top up our coffee cups we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the commentary Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.